three-judge panel to consider and listen to the arguments uh, here today. As you can see, Judge Kobus is in person. I'm participating remotely. And uh, while you cannot see him, uh, Judge Woolman is listening by audio. So while Judge Kobus and I will be engaging with the lawyers during their argument, uh, rest assured that Judge Woolman is listening very carefully uh, to your presentations as well. So with that introduction, uh, will the clerk please call the first case for argument? Yes. The first case for argument is 21-3722 from the District of South Dakota, United States versus Wikapi Milk. Mr. Pichetta? Yes, thank you, Your Honor. Ms. Rich, counsel, judges. My name is Terry Pichotta. I'm representing the appellant in this case, Washapi Milk. Mr. Milk was convicted of um, uh, conspiracy to distribute uh, 500, over 500 grams of methamphetamine. Um, possession of a firearm by a convicted felon and obstruction. Uh, it started out as basically a, uh, a conspiracy case and, and, and shortly thereafter the gun charge. And then uh, months before trial, but subsequent to everything, he was uh, charged on a superseding indictment with the additional charge of obstruction of justice. Um, I've submitted a rather lengthy brief in this case, and I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to get through all of the arguments. But uh, for the arguments that I don't get to today, I, I want the court to know that um, I'm not waived or uh, uh, taken from consideration of the court those that I haven't addressed. I'd like to so start my argument by talking about the sufficiency of the evidence and the sentence in this case. The sentence was, is this, uh, when the court, uh, after reviewing the pre-sentence, um, uh, imposed a sentence of, of uh, 360 months, it was a life, uh, it was a life sentence, uh, so it was like, uh, I forget what, whatever the life sentence is, but uh, she, uh, the district court judge Schreier, uh, sentenced him to 360 months. Now, uh, on the basis of that, he had distributed 23.5 kilograms of uh, methamphetamine. Now, the question is, how do you get from 156 grams that was found in his car when he was arrested to 23.5 kilograms in about six months. This guy had just gotten out of prison in, in California. And it was a, I mean, we can talk about it. This isn't the jury. It was a second degree murder case. He gets out of a California, he gets out of prison in California, stays with some family friends, and, and family, actually. They weren't friends. It was his family in California. And the government's theory is that he then ran into some Samoans who then uh, were providing him with methamphetamines that was uh, be, being then distributed to South Dakota. 
Uh, Ashapi Malk is a, is a, uh, is a Native American. He was from Wombly, South Dakota. So, um, he, a lot of the, the testimony at the trial was through Indian people that he knew on the reservation. Now, here's Counsel, some- Counsel, just to confirm for me, what was the total amount attributed to your client at sentencing? Uh, 23 point, uh, 23.2 kilograms, okay. Your Honor. That was in the, that was the pre-sentence. Um, so there was 157 grams. That's the only amount that they could actually find him possession of if, in fact, the, um, the uh, meth in the car that he was arrested, uh, uh, and he was one of four persons in the car, if, in fact, uh, those were his. Mr. Pachoto, though, the problem is there were so many... Relatively speaking, there, there were a lot of witnesses. There were a lot of witnesses. about a lot of deals, about bags of this and that, pounds here and there, um, eight balls, selling multiple times, 50 times. Um, you know, the standard review on this is... is it's well, tough. It's, it's tough, right? So you had a whole bunch of folks saying... He was all over the place dealing. And then it's just hard to get over, I think, the standard of review here. Um, it was up to the district court to take a hard look at all of this testimony. And the reality is there was a lot of testimony from a lot of different people about a lot of quantity. There, let, me, let me talk about that, Judge. I agree. I agree that, that, uh, that you're probably swimming upstream on... on uh, 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 the sentence under the guidelines before this court. I realize that there has to be clear error. I, re I know that there's, uh, it has to be shown to be a preponderance. But the court has also said that um, the, you know, the, 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 for example, the quantities have to be reliable and, and cooperated. Uh, the court has to do, it has to take a sensible review of the record. Um, the quantities have to be well supported. I mean, this is in this is in cases, uh, including the Eighth Circuit. It's, they have to be supported by other sources. Um, you cannot extrapolate on weight where the evidence is unreliable. We have a court, U.S. v. Simmons, where it said that you can't you can't extrapolate from something that somebody says. Who, who lacks credibility in the case. And Mr. Pachetto, what, what do you think that the correct, assuming the conviction, um, what do you think that the range should have been? What, what should the base offense level have been based on the quantity? Well, you know, when, when you look at it, Your Honor, the, the court did find that there is, that, that, that there was more than 500 grams. That was a court, that was the determination. And uh, then uh, if, if you use that, if you use that, and I realize that you don't have to use that, but it seems to me that, you know, when you take whether or not what the pre-sentence, how the pre-sentence offer calculated things and reached the determination of 23.2 kilograms, that one thing we do know is that 
the jury returned a verdict of more than 500 grams. I don't know why we don't use more than, I don't know why we can't use 30 grams, which is, uh, which is a base offense level of 30. And if you add the additions on, the additions for, well, there was eight points for additions at the 38. A 38 with his guideline is uh, 292 to 365 months. Now, that seems to me a, a, what was the range again, counsel? Two, if you use, if you if you just take what the jury found, they found there was more than 500 grams, and that's a base offense level of 30. And the base offense, then you add on the additions. The, you know, there was eight of those, so eight points filled. That's a 44. So with his guideline, he didn't have a bad criminal record because he spent most of his life in prison. He was a young man when he got convicted. It was a family deal. This wasn't a bank robbery or something. They were all drunk and wombly with his family, and one of the family members get, gets killed. So he, you know. So, so what do you think the range should have been on, on your um, quantity calculation? At the least. The, 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 I don't want to say the least, but, but I think if you want to just consider what the jury found. We know the jury found more than 500 grams. 292 to 365, you know, is... Well, he, got, is uh, he got a sentence within the range you're recommending. He got, he got uh, 360 months. That's the high rate, though. Well, I mean, if you... below the high end of the range you're, you're if suggesting. If you... If you Go, sorry. Isn't it, maybe I'm misunderstanding you, but isn't that within the range that you're suggesting we apply here? 360 months is within that range. True. So, but you know, I. <laughs> it is, but then we didn't get to argue, you know, for a variance or anything like that. So, I mean, it was. You see what I'm saying? I, I understand. Yeah. So okay. there it okay. is. So then. You know, in this case, the quantities, the, the, the way they reached the quantities in this case, there was not one, there was not one, they, they never did find any methamphetamine that was, that was actually taken, possessed, and examined to find out what the, you know, what the, uh, what the amount was. These were all estimates. I mean, they're, they're, they were just like, if you read the pre-sentence report, estimate, estimate, estimate. How can you make what a, were the uh, what was what were the estimates based on, Mr. Pachetto? Uh, was well, it? Were, I mean, were, did any of the witnesses actually sort of see him weigh it, or is this eyeballing the quantity? What was what was their best um, best witness for that? Estimate? I'll tell you how they. I, I'll tell you how they showed how they established uh, um, quantities. They would take a Tupperware can, a Tupperware, you know, a plastic Tupperware container, and they would say, well, is this, is this about what the container looked like? Well, how, you know, how deep was it? What were the dimensions? Or they take a sheet of paper and say, well, was it about like that? And how deep was it? And then, what do you estimate it was? That's, you, that, that's how they establish quantities in this case. You know, did, um, did they did, did did the witness then estimate the the weight, or did was there any kind of evidence presented? Like, well, if we put in to a Tupperware container of this size, 
an, a, a product that carries the same weight as, as this drug, that's the weight we would get. I, I don't believe there was any of that. I, I don't recall any of that in this trial. It's a week long, it was a week-long trial. I mean, most of them was just estimate, what you estimate it to be. Uh, you know, so, I mean, I mean, it's no more than guessing as to quantities, in, 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 in my opinion. Uh, and, uh, Mr. Pachota, I'll let you control your argument and I defer to the presiding judge here, but how about the Sixth Amendment? Uh, issue with the uh, the materials in the in, in the, the Sixth cells. Amendment would, issue if, was. If you'd like, would you address that? Yes, I would, uh, Your Honor. What happened was um, there were a couple other trials before this one. With um, one was of a, a co-defendant at one time, and uh, it was thought that uh, Mr. Milk was trying to. Uh, uh, convinced them, a couple people, by, he wrote a couple letters trying to tell them that they should not testify and what they should do, et cetera, et cetera. So they come through without a warrant, without a court order, in the middle of this case, after I had been working on this case for, you know, a year and a half or two years, and they cleaned out his cell. They, they took every single thing it was. There was hundreds of papers in there. And I moved to suppress. The judge, the, the district court judge said, well, I, I'm, I'm denying the, um, I'm denying the, the motion, uh, in part. But I'm granting it as to, and I've set forth the material, uh, that they, that they granted the motion to suppress on. It was Bates, 2895 to something else. It was about 10 pages of a paper of witnesses, names, uh, uh, comments, uh, weaknesses, um, you know, his mental impressions about these particular witnesses and who, you know, and, 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 and how they, how the examination should take place. And the court said, Okay, you, you, before you go into any of these witnesses, you have to have a hearing under Pelletier, and you have to find whether or not the government had an independent source before introducing the testimony uh, from these particular pages. So, so as I understand it, some of the documents that were suppressed got through the FBI agent's initial screen. They did. They got through the U.S. Attorney's Office screen team. And all of those documents, if I recall, were suppressed. Is that correct? Well. That were privileged that the district court. That, that, the, that the district court okay. found that were privileged. So my question is, what, what was the prejudice here? The prejudice was there was no hearing held. There was no record made by the government as to whether there was independent source. And these people were terrible. They, 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 they presided or they presented terrible testimonies to my client in this case, Your Honor. They testified about, you know, about quantities or what he had to do. You know, they shouldn't have been even, and I objected ever, if you look at my brief, I objected to every time they presented one of these witnesses because of the, the ruling that was made by the circuit court in this case. So, so are you saying, so is your, if maybe I'm understanding a little bit better, you're saying that when the witnesses testified for the government, 
you believe that the government had some information from the suppressed documents that they used in examination? Yes. You know, the court said, here's the names of the people, you know. Of what people? The people whose names were on this, you know, were on. So you're saying the government obtained the identity of witnesses from the materials that were. I have no idea. I don't know how the government attained, you know, the identity of the witnesses that they called. I have no idea. I'm not going to own that at what time they did it. Did Agent Cooper testify? He did. That the government was aware of most, if not all. I don't. Don't quote me on that, but at least the government was aware of the information prior to receipt of this information? I, he didn't say that. I don't believe he said that at trial. And if he said it. Wasn't this at a preliminary hearing of some sort? There was a suppression hearing. And then the court made its decision, and I appealed it to the circuit court, or to the district court. And the district court from the magistrate. But every time they got into the material that was suppressed, I objected. And there's a lot of objections in the record on this thing on that. If I have, I don't have very much time left. There's one other thing that I want to raise, and that is the jurisdiction in this case. I realize 25 United States Code 841 is a general law of the United States. Now, we know that 841 is not part of the Major Crimes Act. We know it can't be under 1152, because that's an exception for Indian versus Indian, or for matters that are left to the tribes under the treaties. And the tribe in this case has a very sophisticated criminal code on drugs. A lot of the matters that were transactions occurred on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. But you're asking us to make new law here, aren't you? No, I'm asking you, when you have a general criminal law of the United States, this is U.S. v. Dion. This was a case, that case was appealed from this court. And the Supreme Court of the United States says, listen, you know, when you have a general law of the United States, and you're going to apply it on an Indian reservation, you have to find, from the statutory language of the legislative history, that it was meant to apply on the Indian reservation. But as a court, the drug statutes in 21 U.S. Code do not apply to Indian reservations. I don't think that there's ever been a determination. Not by this court, I don't believe. It's an open question. Now, the court, the government cites a lot of cases that talks about this particular subject. But those cases were all decided before U.S. v. Dion and the standard that you have to apply. I will reserve the rest of my one minute, I guess, here for rebuttal, Your Honor. You may. Thank you. Ms. Rich? 
Thank you, Judge. Mr. Pachoda. Court. Um, the United States here, the, the trial in this case lasted five days, and we called 24 witnesses, and 12 of those witnesses were drug-involved persons, either subordinates or customers or, or co-conspirators of Mr. Milk. And then 10 law enforcement officers were called um, who corroborated um, uh, various testimony about locations and things of that nature, and then also talked about the collection of physical evidence. And so the same judge who presided over the trial um, sentenced Mr. Milk and found that the United States had met their burden of proven by, by preponderance of the evidence, the drug quantities um, that were used of the 23 kilograms. All of those quantities, the court found, um, were part of this jointly undertaken criminal activity that Mr. Milk was involved in uh, with Ms. Poor Bear, Mr. Brewer, um, and all, all these other individuals who testified, and that it was reasonably foreseeable um, to him that those quantities would be involved. The testimony involved was that Mr. Milk was the connection to the source of supply in California. He was living there originally, and he was the one who had who knew these people and arranged for the transportation of the meth to South Dakota, and that he took some of those trips, had family members take some of those trips um, before he moved to ultimately moved to South Dakota, and then trips were made bringing the meth to him, um, and so that all goes to the reasonable foreseeability of the quantities here. And then, as I as I sort of understand, Mr. Pachota, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but this is sort of an example of the what is it, the sentencing tail, you know, wagging the dog, in the sense that the jury found 500 grams, and the government comes in with 23 kilos uh, on a preponderance with just Tupperware estimates. Uh, can you can you help us understand a little bit more? Um, how you proved up those quantities, if they're in fact, if, if Mr. Pachota is correct, that there were no instances of actually weighing and it was truly the witnesses estimating a size based on a, on a container. Sure. So we, in this, in this trial, we, we kind of did it two different ways. Some of these witnesses are very experienced in eyeballing quantities. Um, for example, Mr. Brewer had a prior drug conviction, was involved in this conspiracy, and these are people who are actively dealing in these these type of quantities. So they know when they see a, a package of this size, based on prior um, their own prior personal experience in weighing quantities, that when I see that, that's about an ounce or that's about a pound. And so that was all elicited, elicited through testimony of them, what their what is the basis for their knowledge um, when they're viewing certain quantities. Some of them actually did see Mr. Milk weigh out certain quantities, um, such as Bobby Joe Hanley was one of the people who came to that Turtle Creek house and, and observed that happening. Um, and uh, other people also saw active, active weighing. Um, but a lot of them, it was a lot of their own personal experience. Now, for some of the witnesses who didn't have that level of personal experience, um, uh, such as uh, Gladys Little Bull, uh, Cheryl Little Bull, um, in their interviews leading up to trial, they would say it was, you know, it was about the size of this piece of paper um, or the size of that notebook. And so we had uh, Special Agent Dan Cooper, who's been investigating drug crimes for 30 years, um, testify at the tail end, as the last witness at trial, that in his training and experience, um, uh, he knows that that would be about this amount. So there was some estimating, but it was done in a very um, specific, 
confined way um, to help the jury understand when that witness says it was this size, what does that mean? And just give some context to that testimony. So we took both approaches there. Um, so it wasn't it was not just a guessing um, by some person who um, you know has no personal experience. Um, there was context to it. We also didn't um, extrapolate the quantities. Sometimes in drug cases, it's done where you know based on money transfers that if somebody wires a certain amount of money, that would equal approximately this amount of methamphetamine based on the common standard of cost. That wasn't done here. All of the quantities were estimated based on. Um, what people actually observed with their own eyes um, or received directly from him. Um, and so there wasn't a testimony that, oh, we heard, I heard that he brought in five pounds or something. It was, it was all based on actual observations of um, persons who testified. Um, and also, I wanted to clarify that this, this conspiracy lasted, I, I think there was a reference to six months, but January 2015 until his arrest in August 2017 is actually closer to 20 months. Um, so the, the time frame for the 23 kilograms is, is longer, and I think that puts into context that it's a little bit more um, understandable. As to the credibility of the witnesses, too, there was a lot of corroboration done between them about... Um, for example, knowing when trips were made, so you know Don Dowdy and Harold Brewer um, had you know known that Don was Harold knew that Don was about to leave on a trip because he'd seen her, and you know so things like that were done to corroborate um, that that you know despite being drug users and despite a passage of time between trial and um, you know the actual conduct that that the things that they could remember were corroborated by other witnesses' testimony or by other things law enforcement was able to, to figure out. Um, um, so we would submit that all of, all of that quantity was, was well supported. And even if, even if there, it should have, you know, the, the um, range there on for the base offense level is 15 to 45. So it was sort of in the lower middle end of the, of the range for the sentencing guidelines. Um, there and and so the a lower a lower range was not was not be reflective of of the level of, of quantity that methamphetamine that Mr. Milk was responsible for bringing in, um, and we don't know. I mean, juries aren't asked to decide you know base offense level um, those level of quantities by their verdict. All we know that um, the jury it was that they believe that he had. Um, been responsible for at least 500 grams, um, but Judge Schreier, who sat through the whole trial, um, found that their their testimony was reliable for purposes of of proving that quantity. Um, the court had also asked about the jail cell search. Um, I think the important starting point for that is that defendants don't have an expectation of privacy in their jail cells, um, and that's the Hudson versus Palmer case. The circumstances here were such that these witnesses had been in danger for years and continue to be in danger, um, and the circumstances leading up to that search were that the um, one person had already been assaulted by Mr. Milk, that's um, Cole Brewer, who's Harold Brewer's brother, and at the Pennington County Jail where the search was done. Uh, the kites had already been collected by Harold Brewer Jr. When, as part of his proffer purposes. And we use the term kites 
At that particular jail, it, they're illicit notes. They're contraband notes that inmates are passing to each other in secret. They're not, um, in some facilities, I think kites are like actual formal communications with jail cells, but that's not the case at the Penny County Jail, which Special Agent Cooper testified to. And then we also had that, that experience um, with Sam O'Rourke during the Brendan Janice trial, who was a co-conspirator of Mr. Milk. Um, and so there was, and then there was another witness, Gerald Baker, who testified in both trials, and he was actually assaulted and had his jaw broken. So, uh, so assuming the search of the cell was appropriate, um, the district court ended up suppressing some of the information, right? And that was on the basis, what, what basis was that on? So what happened is initially the motion to suppress was filed based on attorney violation of attorney-client privilege. And the, um, the the small amount of documents that were provided to the prosecution team um, were reviewed for that. What, and that went through the FBI screen? Correct. And then through your office's screen, is that correct? Correct, yep. And they were... Um, and I say small amount because they took away, each took away a box of papers. And out of those boxes, there was just, um, you know, a, a small stack of papers that were actually provided to the prosecution team as being possibly relevant to witness um, tampering and witness endangerment issues. What happened is that after the evidentiary hearing, the uh, defense raised uh, work product that there was that these constituted work product, and so they were ultimately suppressed on that ground, not as a violation of attorney-client privilege. The, as I read the district court's order, um, document two ninety four, about what was supposed to be done with the documents that were not suppressed, um, was that it w we weren't required to approach the court before we called any of the witnesses mentioned in the in the documents. It was before we were, if we were going to use any of those documents. And so... Were there any uh, witnesses identified in those documents that you were not already aware of? No. No. The record is clear. Is that Agent Cooper's testimony? That's Agent Cooper's testimony. Yep. And he was the, also one of the primary investigators in Brendan Janice's case which it's really the same case, but they were just charged separately. Um, and so he was well aware of who all those people were. And so I think the, I think the, the, the transcript on that um, was such that we did know all those names, so we didn't have any um, witness, in, in, excuse me, <coughs> endangerment issues that, <coughs> that we weren't already aware of. And that was one of the concerns, was that there was a lot of people being threatened who were not in custody, so it wasn't a matter of just removing them to a different facility or, you know, separating people. Was, there's people out of custody, and do we have any responsibility of things to do um, for them that we're not already doing? So, so were these names that uh, this the work product had listed names that presumably were also in the discovery materials? Is that what you're saying? That's correct, Your Honor. That's correct. Okay. And so the objections at trial were... Maybe it was to actually, was it to actually calling those witnesses or was there a substantive objection? You're actually using information from my documents that were suppressed in order to examine this witness. Well, to avoid bringing the issue up in front of the jury, Mr. Pachota would just reference the district court's order, um, document 294, and make his objection based on that. And then the judge would um, overrule it. And so... But my understanding is that 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 
order did not prohibit us from calling those witnesses or using them because we already knew who they were. We'd already interviewed them and provided that statement, their copies of their statements as discovery. And so um, it, my understanding of the order, the reading was that if we were going to use any of the documents that weren't suppressed, that was when we had to approach the court. That weren't suppressed? You had to approach or were suppressed? That were, that were not suppressed. And so we did offer the, the several documents that were not suppressed, um, but because he, um, Mr. Milk was maintaining his objection to the use of those documents, that was when we were required to approach the court. And so um, that, was, that was when that was um, done, was for the particular documents, not the witnesses as a whole. <coughs> but regardless, I think the, um, the record is that we already knew those people. Um, and we already knew that that information about them um, in both the suppressed and not suppressed documents that that was already known to the government. But you, when you say you knew that information, the identity of the witnesses, I guess what I'm, I'm I'm understanding a work product objection would be well, even if you know we all know that these folks are involved, that you got my thought process about how to how to handle these witnesses in examination or cross examination. That sort of seems the part. That is the the objection. Sure, and um, we knew both. We knew their identities. It was um, basically a list of people who we had already turned over their statements in discovery, and then we also knew some of the comment the all of the comments of work product things that were written next to them were such like drug user, um, felon, things of that nature, and so there was nothing in there that was something that we were not already aware of um, and had not already provided as part of our own investigation. Um, and so that was part of the questioning of Special Agent Cooper during the second suppression hearing. Um, and, and so I think the record would show that, or does show that, that um, it didn't provide us any new information as to identity or content, or specifically ways that would impeach them or, or, or anything of that nature. Um, as to, I think, the final issue um, that was discussed was the jurisdiction, which this court reviews de, de novo. Um, I think this court's decision in United States versus Drapo controls um, that no notice is required to give to a tribe um, for the possible prosecution of a tribal member. And then here, the... The problem with the defense argument is that the conduct didn't just occur in on the Pinehurst Reservation. It didn't just occur in Rapid City. It didn't just occur in California. It occurred in all of those places um, over a period of time, uh, repeatedly. With the nature of this of this conspiracy, like many conspiracies, involved quite a bit of travel, and um, so the United States would be the only entity that would have jurisdiction to prosecute him for the entirety of the conspiracy. Um, and no, uh, but what if it didn't? What if it was just in Pine Ridge? Well, there, I still don't... I, I, the way that I read the Dion decision is that it's it still wouldn't be... Up. Okay, that, I mean, that, that's my question, right? I mean, is that... Um, the government's position, as I understand, is that it applies even on Pine Ridge. Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, yes, yeah, that... When, you know, when Congress passed the Controlled Substances Act, was to deal with a nationwide problem. 
um, anywhere in the nation, including the Pine Ridge Reservation. And so as I read Dion, I, I, I don't read it the way that Mr. Pachota does, that that would um, that it would be required to give notice or that, that jurisdiction would not have been appropriate the way we charged it. Yeah, right. As long as the, the elements of the offense were met. I, I, Correct. Okay. Yep. Um, as to the, the remaining arguments, we did, we did submit quite detailed briefs, and I would argue that in, in the numerous rulings that were issued by the district court um, over the course of five years as we litigated this, that um, there was no abuse of discretion or clear error in any of the other rulings. Yeah, the jury verdict was supported by ample evidence, um, and the sentence was supported by the district court's rulings, applying the preponderance of the evidence standard, and I would urge this court to affirm. Thank you. Thank you. Your Honor, with respect to the amount of time that Mr. Milk was involved in this, um, into this uh, conspiracy, uh, he, he was on probation, uh, supervised release in California, and was actually complying with the terms of the supervised release in February, in the, uh, until February, which then he absconded. And he was then uh, picked up in Rapid City at this car stop that I talk about in my first assignment in August of, uh, of that year. So that's six months that he was uh, involved in uh, any drug activities. Um, in my brief, I talk about um, th the amount of methamphetamines that uh, people actually seen Mr. Um, Mr. Milk with um, or uh, that could say, yes, you're associated with that amount and it comes to 6,000 grams is, is what I went through. And I made the same argument to the circuit court or to the district court at sentencing, at sentencing in this case. And finally, I don't remember Cooper ever saying anything about this order uh, of all this material that they took from this, uh, took from this cell. Uh, and uh, especially no testimony by him as to, he, he knew what the order was. He could have complied with it. We could have had the hearing, but they didn't. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you to both counsel for your arguments here today and your briefing in the case. We'll take the matter under advisement.